What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Anas Alhaji. So if you haven't heard Dr. Anas speak before, he is the absolute best in the oil, gas, and energy sector. So he breaks down everything from his 2023 outlook, how the Ukraine-Russia war has affected the energy sector one year into this war and the invasion of Ukraine. And then he, lastly, he gets into his daily report as well. So be sure to subscribe to his Substack. Check out everything he's got going on. Follow him on Twitter. I'm putting all of this in the show notes as well. And as always, please, please, please give this a five-star review and share with friends and family. Help the show grow. Help uh, you know, get this macro insights out there. I'm pumping out a lot of content for you guys, so I really appreciate the support. So please, please, please keep sending it out. Check out my YouTube, subscribe there, and give all the videos and everything a thumbs up, comment, all that jazz. I really do appreciate the support. And uh, yeah, the support from you guys helps me bring on guests like this. So please, 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 if you can, uh, take a minute to support the show and... As always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice, so please do not take it as financial advice. This is an episode that occurred on Twitter Spaces on Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Ran it for a couple hours, so uh, it's a little bit different of a format. But if next time, if you want to come onto the show to ask some questions to a very special guest like Dr. Anas, be sure to follow me on Twitter at GreenCandleIT. And join those spaces every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, enough of me blabbing. Let's get into the show. All right, welcome, welcome everybody in, uh, David, Doctor Anas. How are you guys doing tonight? Very well, thank you very much, Brandon. David, how are you? I'm doing extremely well, and thank you, Doctor Anas, for coming in. You're welcome. Yep. So we'll let uh, some people trickle in here a little bit more maybe uh two or three minutes or so and then we will get started um yeah so i guess everybody buckle up we have uh <clears throat> excuse me i'll actually uh pin dr Noss's um <clears throat> dr Noss's newsletter up at the top as well i tweeted out some of the uh latest issues as well um, but I will put that in the nest in case anybody wants to, you know, give it a read a little bit prior or follow along as he's explaining. And uh, yeah, so great stuff from Dr. Anas. If you're not subscribed to his newsletter, be sure to check it out as well. It's great stuff. So we'll give it here another minute or two and uh, then we'll get rolling. And just as people are coming in, I, I definitely think that we're seeing some interesting macroeconomic type developments, especially considering, let's say, this potential pivot that we have within Fed. And then we have, obviously, within the energy uh, market, some of the most turmoil type situations. And so having the perspective of, of a true expert is actually genuinely needed in these times, especially when we're talking about LNG, coal, and even uh, oil in that sense.
Yeah, for sure. And uh, Dr. Anas is one of the best in the business when it comes to breaking down the oil and gas and, you know, energy markets as a whole. So I really enjoy listening to him speak. Um, so I'm honored to to have you here, Dr. Anas, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, you know, I've, I've taken a peek at the newsletters as well, and, and they're outstanding. So if anybody has uh, any consideration about, uh, you know, checking it out. Uh, I do have three of the latest issues pinned at the top a little bit for everybody, but we're, we're going to get a deep dive here in a masterclass from Dr. Anas tonight. So um, Dr. Anas, uh, how you doing tonight? Uh, how's everything going over there? And uh, I guess wherever you're, you're at these days. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, luckily, I am back home in uh, North Texas after uh, visiting several countries that include uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Oman, and Qatar. And, uh, uh, you know, after a while it gets to you because, you know, it's the other side of the world. And, um, yes, you can handle it for a few days at the beginning, and then after that it gets really gets to you. But thank you very much for the invitation today. Um we talked about a lot of things in the past, and uh, luckily, most of the most of the views that we had happened. They materialized. Whether it comes to the SPR, comes to prices, comes to the market, market balances, uh, OPEC, etc. Um, so we already went through this. We went through the sanctions, Russia, the uh, price caps, all these stuff. So we are not going to go over this. What we are going to do basically today is talk about the lessons learned from this year of conflict and what are the main results of this conflict. So whatever I'm going to introduce today uh, is really the, the conclusion of everything we had so far. So I'm going to mention first the main conclusions for the oil sector. Then I'm going to talk about uh, natural gas and LNG. And by the way, for those who are interested in natural gas and LNG, uh, we have two types of newsletters. We have the main weekly newsletter and comes with many perks, including other reports. And in those newsletters, every week, we have a whole section on natural gas, LNG, or hydrogen. Every week. So usually we have three sections, but always we have a section on natural gas, and I can assure you that when it comes to natural gas, especially uh, in Europe and other places, the views expressed there and the forecasts are unmatched. Um, then there is another newsletter. The other newsletter, basically, we were not planning on it at first, but we got uh, many complaints because of the pricing of the, of the original news at the weekly, and people were asking for a cheaper one. So we did the daily. So we have the daily uh, energy report that's $420 a year. And I can tell you, I am really upset and upset for the following reason. The number of people who complained about pricing is higher than the number of people who subscribe. But that tells you what Twitter is. Anyway, uh, hopefully the numbers will pick up after that. It's, it's almost a dollar a day. Uh, but hopefully uh, it will pick up after that and we'll see how it's going to go. Uh, in this daily report, uh, we focus on three segments. We have chart of the day, story of the day, and then news of the day. 
and we comment on all of them. Uh, and the first issues all are available for free, uh, so you can check them out. So today we are going to talk about the lessons, we are going to take, uh, talk about the conclusions uh, of that. The first conclusion of the conflict after one year of war and sanctions and whatever follows in terms of price caps, etc. We have change in direction of energy trade worldwide. And the change is unprecedented. We've seen such a change in 1973, 1974, but it was short-lived uh, and did not last long. Uh, and it was mostly kind of played regionally. This time is completely different. So we've seen the Russian crude, for example, moving from Europe to Asia, then moving from Russia, from Europe, of course, from Europe to Africa. Uh, and then we've seen the same thing for products. And just to give you some examples, and those charts are available in the uh, Daily Energy Report for free. You can see there are 14 charts there in the most recent report. You can check them out and probably Brandon will put it in the nest. There are 14 charts there. You can check them out. They, they, they are mostly uh, reflective of what went on throughout the year. But one of the uh, examples, for example, is that India's oil imports from Russia in December 2021 were only 1% of total oil imports of India. In December 2022, that percentage jumped from 1% to 23%. And now probably it's about 24%. So we've seen a major jump. And you look at the other charts in that report, we have China. Uh, China's oil imports from Russia increased. But whenever we talk about imports right now, and, and there are some shocking issues that I'm going to talk about today. Please be extremely careful with what you read and the data you get. Because the, the official data shows that China's oil imports from Russia increased and then decreased. So for the last four months of the year, we've seen a decrease in China's oil imports from Russia. But these are the official numbers. They don't include two numbers. They don't include the, imp the, the imports of the Russian crude from third uh, country or third party. And they don't include whatever they get in the black market from the ghost ships. Although the data shows that the share of Saudi exports to Russia were steady, which means that Saudis did not lose market share to Russia. That's correct. That's true. But that's the official numbers. If you add the unofficial numbers, what you find out that the Saudis are losing market share from the growth of demand in, in China. So the, the Russians are filling that gap through various measures. So we've seen that change in trade and change in direction in oil. We also seen it in natural gas. In fact, when we talk about natural gas, let me reiterate something we talked about before. There was more incentive for Russian companies 
to re or, or to divert the gas or redirect the gas than the Europeans. Why? Because most of it was contract gas that was oil indexed gas. While the spot price was going through the roof, we got record prices of LNG, we got record prices of spot natural gas. And therefore, it was in their interest to move that gas from contract to spot or to LNG. And they needed a legal reason for that because they, they did not break any contract so far. So they did find all the reasons and they did not renew any of the contracts. They came up with the idea of the ruble simply to force the other countries not to renew the contracts. So there were benefits from that. The main conclusion of this is that all the media and many analysts are saying that Europe succeeded in this and Europe succeeded in this and they diverted this, etc. The fact is the diversion came from both sides. The Russians wanted to divert. It's, if you look at the, uh, the trade since 2014, it was intended by the Russian government and the Russian companies to find other routes to sign new contracts since 2014. So there was, it was intentional on the Russian part to divert and the Europeans wanted to divert too. So it came from both sides. It's not only one-sided story. And when it comes to gas in particular, it was mostly the Russian story, not the European story. The oil is a European story, but not the gas. So we've seen that with coal too. So the main, one of the main results now we are talking about is the diversion of trade. And again, you can see the data and the charts in the daily energy report. And uh, there is no paywall. So you can see all those charts. The second result is that China was able to fill its inventories and its SPR. And they were able to do it for two reasons. Now, let me remind you of what we talked about in the previous space. In the previous space, we talked about how the Chinese uh, built their SPR in 2020. They bought it on the cheap, on average price, probably $18 to $20. And then they sold it for $70 and $75 in 2021. And that prevented oil prices from going to 100 Now, by the end of 2021, the Chinese do not have enough oil in the SPR and their, their inventories were very low. Their idea was, I will wait until the first quarter of 2022 where demand is seasonally low and then prices will decline and then I can refill the SPR. But what happened is they were coming out of the Olympics and Putin went to Ukraine and prices went through the roof. So the Chinese were panicking, but it did not, that panic did not last long because they ended up with uh, a situation where they were getting the cheap Russian oil on one side while they had the lockdowns. On the lockdowns, basically, the demand declined substantially. And at the same time, they are getting a lot of cheap crude so they were able to refill their inventories and their inventories went through the roof. Although their inventories been declining in recent months, and you can see that again in the, in the charts in the Substack, 
is still very high. How high? Well, higher than the United States of America. Right now, for China, even with the decline, underground and above ground storage is above 1 billion barrels. And that's probably about 170 million above the United States total inventories, that commercial inventories and the uh, strategic uh, petroleum reserves. So they have a lot. And as you know, we talked about this before, they are going to use the SPR to prevent prices from going up. And as China opens up, I know many people were very bullish. Look, prices are still below $85 today. Why? Because the Chinese are releasing oil from storage and they are going to continue doing so until toward the end of the year. And for those who followed our 2023 oil market report, which is available without a paywall, you just search it, just tied to 2023 uh, oil market report or my name or something like this, and you will get it. And in it, basically, we stated that China's reopening is not going to have an impact on the oil market until the fourth quarter of 2023. And there are, of course, many issues about the outlook. Probably we'll get some questions on that and answer them. But uh, to refocus again on the results of what happened during this year of conflict, the third result is that we ended up with the largest black market in the oil business in the history of the oil industry. The black market is huge right now. We can spend a whole hour talking about it, but I want to focus only on one single point that is important to everyone who is in the oil industry or trade oil stocks or trade oil or anything related to oil and gas. Since 2017, the data deteriorated significantly, especially on the oil part. And when I talk about deterioration, and I see some of my friends who always talk about the drilling productivity report and the decline in productivity of wells, etc., based on the AIA drilling productivity report. Look, this report is worthless, literally worthless. Even the guys who are doing it, they are asking the AIA to stop it. So please stop promoting it. It's meaningless. And if you can sit at home, you can create a parallel one. Probably it's even better than the AIA. So the data is already bad. But because of the size of the black market right now in oil and gas, the data is way worse. And because Bloomberg and Reuters, basically in their reporting of exports, they report only the exports that are related to tankers that switch on uh, their radars and their locations and all that stuff, but they don't count anything else. And those waiters and Bloomberg has very high reach worldwide, especially among traders. You can see how bad the situation is going to get. And for those of, uh, of you who remember, especially from our Canadian friends in the calm community. The, 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 the numbers uh, related to the rig count, especially in Saudi Arabia, were always reported wrong. They were reporting 
always say 60 rigs is not enough. And I've been telling them, no, they have over 200. Finally, we get it from the mouth of the CEO. And he said, we are going to have 300 by the end of the year. And uh, he literally said that the uh, Baker Hughes numbers basically are nonsense. So you can imagine how bad the data is. So you have to be very close to those areas and to those decision makers to be able to know what uh, the truth is. So the first result is that we have changed in the direction of trade that misses things up and misses up the data. And the second one is we have the filling of the strategic reserves of China. And even on that, we have a lot of dispute and therefore the data is not that clear for many. And then we have, of course, the size of the black market uh, getting larger than, uh, than ever. And as a result of this, we have new things happening. And one of them is the reduction of the role of OPEC and OPEC+. Plus. What do we mean by that? Well, the release of the SPR in the United States by 180 million barrels a day literally limited OPEC ability to do things. And now China is going to repeat what they done in 2017 and 2018 and 2021 and what they are doing right now. So they are limiting the role of OPEC. And as we discussed before, the market is no longer is, is about oligopoly. It is about a term we use in economics, which is oligopsony. Oligopsony when you have people who have market power on the production side and people who have uh, market power on the buying side. And using the SPR, basically, that's a market power for the buyer. And for China in particular, because of their size and because of the size of the SPR and, willing them to be, and their willingness to be flexible, they are very influential in this part. So one of the lessons we learned is that the role of OPEC uh, basically being uh, restrained uh, uh, in this case. This brings us, of course, to the point of the, the 26 million barrels that the Biden administration will release between uh, April and June this year. Many of you who joined the previous space remember that we talked about that video. Uh, it's a 30-minute video, uh, or, and this is several months ago, when I explained the SPR, and I said in that video since then that the end of the SPR releases will have no impact or limited impact on prices. That's exactly what happened. And I also mentioned that there are mandatory releases by the Congress that could be released in 2023. So my comments on the 26 million barrels that will be released, it's of course not a surprise, but the Congress mandated the 26 million, but who chose the dates? And who chose the crude quality? Because the, the Biden administration decided is going to be light sweet. Do we really need light sweet? And why they are not touching the medium sour? And why when they announced that they want to buy the 3 million barrels, if you recall that time, uh, when they said, they said we are going to buy medium sour. Of course, it did not materialize because the, whoever wrote the, uh, the specs for the contracts, it was very clear from day one, and we already have a whole uh, uh, substack letter on this for those who are interested. We said this in the letter at that time. We said whoever wrote this wrote it because they don't want to buy it. 
there is no way you can buy that oil even at the market price because the conditions were extremely costly. But the idea here is why this emphasis on crude quality and why April to June? Um, someone may say, well, that's crude. If you release it between April and June, this is just before the driving season. You need gasoline. You can get gasoline from light sweet crude. And it's just before OPEC meeting in June or OPEC plus. Well, the counter argument is if you are going to release that before OPEC plus meeting in June, you are just telling them what to do. In a sense, if you are challenging them, they might just go for another cut in this case. So we don't know really why the Biden administration chose that timing and why they chose the light sweet uh, crude. And the last comment, of course, when we talk about the results and the lessons we learned, there are too many, but I'm going to focus just on the main issues. If you go back to, and this is the final result for the oil part, if you go back to 2019 and you look at the forecast, everyone was forecasting, and the Russians said that, and everyone in OPEC said that, that Russia will increase its production. And we are going to see some increase in Russian production. Well, guess what? Now we know for sure that Russia's production have not recovered to pre-COVID levels. It has not recovered. And that expectation of increase in production probably gone for years or probably gone forever. So we are not going to see it. And for Russian production, again, I would like to go back to that 2023 oil market report. Our prediction is that and, and this was written in early January, that Russian production would decline by about 600,000 barrels a day this year. And there are legitimate reasons for that uh, decline. They already announced that they will cut production by 500,000, but it was very confusing because we did not know whether it was products, whether it was crude, and which part, etc. But it is very clear that the main impact uh, all of this happened at the same time when they announced a new pricing system to collect taxes by relating the discount to Brent, which means that most likely the impact is going to be on differentials, but not on the overall price level. So these are some of the results that we've seen throughout uh, the year. As for natural gas, uh, we learned some really important uh, lessons here. And the main lesson we learned about Europe in particular is that Europeans and some in the United States and Canada uh, are idealistic when it comes to the environment, when it comes to climate change, and with, when it comes to uh, uh, human rights as long as their welfare is intact. And we learned now, all of those issues, the environment, climate change, and human rights, do not matter when the welfare of the Europeans is in danger, when their economies are in danger. So we've seen them going back to coal, We've seen them going back to oil. We've seen them basically removing people from a top of 
a village from a top of a coal mine in Germany. So human rights basically did not matter. So this was really a very important lesson, especially for those who are on the far left and for the people who are uh, literally uh, um, ultra uh, climate change prophets. A big lesson here is that, yes, you can be idealistic uh, any way you want to, but reality is something else. And we've seen it in Europe and how they retreated. And when we talk about Europe retreat, when it comes to climate change, environment and human rights, I would like you to think of what BP, Shell and Total and any and others in, the, in, in, in Europe, Equinor, for example, are doing. Equinor, we already know that the Norwegians have decided already to ignore all the climate change issues that are related to the exploration and the production of oil. There are a lot of money to be made and a lot of money to buy electric vehicles. And why leave money on the table? Although the government in Norway is a leftist, one of the issues that are really will make you laugh is that they have to weigh two options. They have to weigh the option of offering jobs in the oil, in the oil business versus the environment. And the environment does not vote, but the oil business, the workers in the oil business vote. So even a leftist government in Norway sided with the workers and they decided to go for more exploration. And the irony is that move by Norway saved Europe. But the issue here is very clear that those people who are on the far left, they should realize that all those forecasts about the end of oil, the end of gas, the end of coal, etc., that are coming from their publications, from their research centers, is a hogwash. This is not going to materialize. Now we know for sure. We see it on the ground, what's happening. And the issue, when we talk about future investment, Everyone is worried about lack of investment in the oil and gas sector and how this is going to lead to an energy crisis. Yes, we don't have enough investment. And we know some people who are trying to make the case for, to, to be ultra bullish on oil. That's a big mistake. Why? Because when we talk about investment, this issue of investment, if Europe starts retreating and the companies like BP start retreating back along with a luck step with the countries, because that's how we got to, to view the behavior of BP and how they retreated. They retreated when they saw the government's retreat. So you got to put it within that framework. And when you see that, the biggest story of the future is an energy crisis where the reason for the crisis is the failure of some of the green policies, not the lack of investment, or the, the role of the lack of investment is smaller or very small relative to the issues related to the failure of the green policies. For example, the growth 
an investment in EMP, in oil and gas sector, in 2022, the growth was the highest ever in the history of the oil industry. Let me repeat that again. The growth in spending in oil and gas in upstream in 2022 was the highest ever. Yet the level is still lower than 2019 by about 10%. Probably uh, we can cover that this year or next year. Now, I understand some of you will say that's inflation. Well, inflation and cost inflation is about 50% of that. We still have 50% uh, extra in this case. But the idea here is we got to be very careful talking about investment because we can deal with that investment. We cannot deal with the failure of the green policies or some of them. That's where the issues are. The other issue, the other, the other result that we got in the gas sector is that Europe shifted its dependence uh, from Russian gas to American gas, to U.S. gas. This is very important because some of the media sources and some analysts are talking about the success of Europe in mitigating the crisis, avoiding the crisis, and this, and this, and this, and this. Look, the only reason why Europe did not experience a massive crisis is because two things. One of them was a scenario that was predicted, and the other one was not predicted by anyone. No one predicted that Europe can go back to coal. No one predicted that the government can institute um, conservation measures that will lower the welfare of Europeans in a way that they haven't seen in a very, very long time. That was not predicted. So we have two issues that were not predicted, which is the, uh, the coal, returning to coal, and the lower welfare and lower living standards in Europe. That reduced the gas. The scenario that was there, which is the possibility of a mild winter, and that happened. So no one can brag about the success of Europe when you have two major issues, basically, that help them, and one of them is the weather. But the other issue is Europe has not solved any of its energy problems. None. Because all they did is shift the dependence from one country to another. And the problem with that shift is when you compare U.S. gas to Russian gas, now I understand how we feel about uh, Putin. Putin is a criminal. Putin is a dictator. He is going to go on record in history as a uh, really kind of a, a bloodsucker, a, a guy who is really one of the bad guys, just like Catherine the Great and, 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 and Ivan the Terrible and all that stuff. But the issue, and we have enough evidence to support this point, the Russian gas was more secure and cheaper than LNG from the United States. Way cheaper. Why? Because most of it was on contracts, and contracts basically were long-term contracts that ensured the supplies on one side and ensured that the prices would, would fluctuate with oil prices to certain limits. But all the LNG that is exported from the United States is spot market. 
the price could go from $7 to $70. And if China starts competing and wanted that gas, Chinese will pay even a higher price and Europeans will not get it even at a higher price. And it just happened that all the LNG terminals are in the Gulf of Mexico. And we know that we have those hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico. And this is one of the luckiest years for Europe and the Biden administration when we talk about the, um, uh, uh, the impact of hurricanes. Because if we have some serious hurricanes this year, so between mild weather in Europe and the um, lack of serious hurricanes in the region, that affected the oil and gas industry, the, the weather really helped. But what's going to happen in the coming years? So the, and at the same time, we already have seen some politicians in the United States calling on reducing LNG supplies to Europe when natural gas prices in the United States reached eight and nine dollars. And we might see more calls if natural gas prices reach 14. Speaking of natural gas here, uh, I was one of those people who predicted that we might go to $14, but it did not happen. And why did it not happen? Of course, we have the explosion or the fire that hit Freeport. So that to be safe a day that got stranded in the United States. So we, we have that. But we do have another issue that was not predicted, that the western flank of the Permian in, in New Mexico. And just to give you background on that, Remember when the, toward the end of days of the Trump administration, what the Trump administration did is give thousands of licenses for the oil companies to drill on federal land. And that's federal land. So we have many licenses there. And companies and rig count, as you know, went up in 2022. Uh, and many companies drilled in that area. And what we ended up was... Stunning. We already have seen it before. And, and this is mentioned in several of our newsletters, by the way, with charts and information. What we've seen basically is most of the drilling activities that took place in that area came up with wells with a lot of natural gas liquids, a lot of condensates, and a lot of gas. That was not the case. We, 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 we were surprised by the amount of liquids that came out of those wells. So that contributed too, to uh, lower uh, gas prices. We got, we got more gas and more liquids. And uh, before we make any conclusions about this trend, we've seen this happening several times in shale before, and we've seen the companies reacting quickly to that. Uh, why? Because they lose money. They lose money on the gas and they lose money on the NGLs and the percentage of the price out of uh, WTI declines, and that's not good for them. So what they do is they either change the zones or change the location to make sure that they go to any crude that is around 40 to 45 API and nothing above 55. So the result of this is, and that's another reason to uh, focus on that the American or the U.S. share revolution was a revolution for the history books to be written about. 
this was unprecedented in its impact. And I'm not talking only about the, the economic impact. I am talking about the huge political dimensions of this revolution. There was no way on earth that the Trump administration and President Trump would have imposed sanctions on Iran and Venezuela at the same time in 2018 without the Shia revolution. The, uh, the uh, President Trump would not have reimposed the sanctions on Iran without the Shia revolution. Remember, at 2018, what the height of production at that time. And there was no way on earth that Europe would have stood in the face of Putin without the Shia revolution. And the Biden administration would not have the guts to stand with Europe the way it stood with all the support from LNG. For God's sake, we are, we are exporting about 12 BCF a day of LNG. You say this to someone in 2008 and they will tell you are crazy because we were importing LNG at that time. So the Shear Revolution basically had this political reach and it's literally affected the whole world, not only the case of Russia, Ukraine, and Europe. It has an impact on the rest of the world, whether you talk about oil, whether you talk about petroleum products and what the U.S. refiners are exporting, you talk about NGLs, etc. It's changing the whole thing. And when you talk about LNG, the whole idea of moving from long-term contracts to uh, spot came because of that share revolution. Otherwise, you'll see more contracts, uh, more, more long-term contracts that are oil indexed. The last two points before I finish, there are general points not related only to oil and gas. They are just general applied to energy and non-energy. But the issues are some of the lessons that we learned from this period. The first one is we've seen those European governments who were opposing oil, they were opposing fossil fuel, and they were opposing subsidies, going back to fossil fuel and literally spending, spending billions supporting consumers to consume fossil fuel. This is truly an, um, an amazing retreat, an amazing change in the behavior. And if you are wondering why oil prices remain high in the 80s right now for those who were more bearish, well, this is one of the reasons. It's those subsidies that maintained the consumption, although consumption declined, but it did not decline much because of those subsidies. They should have basically not subsidized them and let prices go up, let the reaction of consumers basically lower the demand uh, substantially uh, so we can see the impact of higher prices. But that's not the case. That wasn't the case. And the final lesson and the biggest lesson of all, of all sanctions do not work. Embargoes do not work. Price caps, price ceilings do not work. Look, we are already talking about the 11th round of sanctions on Russia. Why is number 11? Why number one did not work and number two and number seven and number nine? Why they did not work? Because sanctions do not work. They never worked. If you look at the literature for 120 years, sanctions never worked. But they cause a lot of pain. So if you want to cause pain, yes, they cause pain. 
but they cause pain on everyone, not only the targeted country. Everyone feels the pain. So yes, they are causing a lot of pain, but they are not changing anything on the ground. And for the price cap, it is a joke and still a joke. And for Dr. or Professor Janet Yellen, Secretary Janet Yellen, she is obsessed with this idea that it is working and they keep talking about it, it's working. For God's sake, this is the biggest lie I ever heard from Janet Yellen. Why? Because the price cap was imposed on December 5th. And by the end of December, they started talking about how the price cap reduced the revenues of the Russian government. Everyone in the business knows. Until you produce, you ship, you receive the money, and the banks basically settle all those contracts. And then companies pay taxes, and those taxes become government revenues. You are talking about months and months. How the Russian revenues were affected only in two weeks? This is a joke. Yes, Russia revenues declined, but they did not decline because of the price cap. They declined because prices, oil prices were 130 and they declined to 80. That's why they declined. But the irony here is how you are going to count this, because if you talk to the Russians, what the Russians are saying, saying, look, my revenues in 2022 equal my revenues in 2021. So sanctions do not work. They don't achieve their objectives. They cause pain. Now, I understand people say we got to do something. But yes, but when we got to do something, think about this. You want to punish Putin and lower his revenues? And you are of the camp that we should do something? Well, then explain this to me. Why is the United States still importing enriching uranium? from Russia until today, where 15 to 20% of our nuclear reactors operate on Russian-enriched uranium until today, and they pay Putin by U.S. dollars. We already put in our Substack newsletters charts about nickel, about aluminum. Why we are still importing that from them? So you want to talk about punishment? Let's talk about that. And the European Union is doing the same. And for all of those who talked about European companies, oil companies, and the service companies leaving Russia, well, they are still there. Service companies are still there. Baker Hughes got out. That's the news. But in reality, what happened? All of a sudden, the Russian workers of Baker Hughes in Russia are so rich that they can afford to buy Baker Hughes unit with all its expertise, all the technology, all the equipment. So the unit still operating until today as is, only on paper. It's not owned by Baker Hughes. You want to talk about sanctions? Explain why Japan was exempt from the price cap and from the sanctions. You want to talk about sanctions, then explain why the sanctions apply only to uh, seaborne tankers and does not apply to pipelines.
and why there are exemptions even for that. The price cap, explain why the price cap was set so high that everything becomes legal. And they can use European banks, they can use European insurance and European services without any problems. So the bottom line of all of this is that we did learn several lessons and the result of this is change in the world trade to a less efficient market with a market with deteriorating data quality and life for us analysts is going to be harder than ever. And there will be too many conflicting stories and there will be a lot of pain where one of the sides of the trade is going to lose and is going to lose a lot. Thank you. Um, Brandon, um, we can start the questions and answers. Sure. Awesome. Well, yeah, that was great. Um, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Dr. Antnos does have a substack. He has two different kinds, one that he goes into deep dive for more, uh, I guess, larger clients, and then one that is... Uh, a little bit more brief um, that is a little bit over a dollar a day. So uh, if you really enjoyed his speech, definitely consider uh, subscribing to those sub stacks. They're outstanding. Um, but we're going to start rolling through questions here. So I'm going to let you guys up one by one. And uh, yeah, we'll have you ask your question and maybe if you got another follow-up or two. Um, and also, you know, please be respectful of Dr. Anas's time here. So Thanks so much, Dr. Anas. And uh, Mickey, you are the first one up. As he's connecting. Thanks for waiting patiently to Mickey for uh, waiting for a bit. Mickey, uh, do we got gotcha? you? Yeah, uh, it got me. Thanks so much. And uh, really appreciate um, listening to you, Dr. Anas. I, I always learn a lot. And you, you said something a little bit earlier that I would love to learn a little bit more about. Actually, you said a lot of things I want to learn more about. But there's one thing in particular. You said China will repeat what it did in 2017, 2018, and 2021 in limiting the role of OPEC. Um, what did they do in 2017, and 2018, and 2021, and how, how do they limit the role of OPEC? Thanks so much. Um, they released oil from the SPR. Oh, got it. All right. Well... Great question and answer there. And uh, all right, I'm going to try to remember the order as you guys are coming in. But if I get you guys out of order, I apologize. Um, Tara, welcome up to the space. Do you have a question for Dr. Anas? Yeah, thank you. Um, and thanks. Yeah, as always, I, I you're a brilliant speaker and it's, it's always awesome to learn from you. And you, I joined a little bit late, so you may have touched upon this, but the part that I can't necessarily figure out, and maybe there is no figuring out of this just yet, but in the context of, and I believe that Putin says what he means for a long, long time, in the context of him and she and everybody talking about a multipolar world and coming out with a potential BRICS currency maybe even later this summer. And from what I understand, potential is to be backed by gold and oil. I, I, I know, you know, studying Putin that he knows 
the natural resources space like really, really, really well. So I, I can't imagine he's not going to want that to be part of his puzzle. But then take that one step further. And usually if you have an asset backed currency, you want the price of that asset to do well. I mean, I don't, I don't know what that actually means, I guess. That's what, what I'm trying to figure out. You know, is there a scenario where they really want to screw it to the West and say, all right, we've formed our own world okay. of oil. Okay, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go off. Yeah. I, I got the, okay. I got the right, point. Thanks. I got the point. Thank you. Uh, first of all, we do have a space for, more, for two and a half hours explaining all of those issues. And it is, um, uh, I'll try to post it uh, later tonight. Uh, and we already have a newsletter in the Substack discussing the issue of the UN and the Chinese UN and the pricing in oil and the uh, willingness of the Saudis and the Iraqis to use it, etc. We have a full discussion of all of those. Uh, think about it this way. In the news in the last two days that the Russians and the Russian uh, fund, basically they want to have more UN. Uh, and at the same time, we heard uh, the Russians basically trying to use the UAE dirham uh, to get paid for all their shipments to to India. So what is unique about the UN and what is unique about the dirham? Well, the UN fluctuates within a very narrow range relative to the US dollar, and the dirham is back to the dollar. So if they really want to kill the dollar and they want their own currency, why they are reverting to currencies that are highly linked to the U.S. dollar? The second question is, why only the countries that are embargoed are doing this? Academically speaking, we have to ask the question, are there countries that are completely free who are wish willing to ditch the U.S. dollar? None. Every country that tried to talk about ditching the dollar basically has, they have an embargo imposed on them. You can look at it from another way that it is really the sanctions and the embargoes that are forcing this uh, trend. Uh, and therefore, if the U.S. is really concerned, then they have to change their policy when it comes to the sanctions and the financial sanctions and the SWIFT and all these things. When it comes to oil, Oil has been priced in U.S. dollar. It is priced in U.S. dollar. And it will continue to be priced in U.S. dollar. I can, um, uh, I see Adam Townsend here uh, in our group. And um, uh, I've written an article for his website on this. So probably Adam can post the link uh, to that uh, on, on uh, his website. Uh, in the nest. Um, there is no alternative. And for those countries to get together and try to create another currency, remember this, it took Europe 40 years to get to the euro. And Europe basically was more advanced, more technically advanced. They have no problems with their transportation system. They have no problems with their communication systems, etc. For God's sake, some of the BRICS members are building roads right now, roads, which means that they still have dirt roads until today. So to think all of those countries, Europe, 
is connected. They are in one continent. The BRICS are all over the place. Their trading partners are different. And therefore, whatever currency they agree on, some of them are not going to accept it because their trading partners are different. So I don't believe it for a moment that BRICS is going to have a currency on its own. And I don't believe that even if they accept Saudi Arabia and others, that the Saudis will jump and on that currency. It is the best security for the Saudi financial system and the other Gulf states is to keep linking their currency to the dollar. I'm not talking about politics here. I'm not talking about conspiracy. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about pure common sense approach to economic policy. And since we are talking about this, I just want to say the following. There is a conspiracy theory going on on Twitter and other places that there was this agreement, secret agreement between the Saudis and the Americans to price oil in dollar. I challenge anyone in the world to produce hard evidence to show that was the case. There is not a single hard evidence until today. There could be there, but we have not seen any of that. And therefore, the idea that they, they have this agreement and therefore the rule of Al Saud is linked to it, it's like this complete nonsense. Back to you, Brandon. Okay. Thank, thank you very much. And I'll read the um, everything you, you talked You're about. Yeah. Awesome. Great question. Um, thanks for coming up. We, we had Nathan here now. And uh, Adam Townsend, I do see you down in the audience as well. So if you want to tweet out that uh, link that Dr. Anas was talking about, feel free. And uh, if you want to DM it to me, the tweet, or uh, tag me in it or whatnot so I can see it, and I will uh, pin it at the nest at the top. Um, but Nathan, the floor is yours. Welcome up. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Anas, I was wanting to ask you if your opinion on the decarbonization and and changing the the way the fuel is structured and and how that will affect uh things what do you what, what do you mean by that i i'm sorry i kind uh, of misunderstood i apologize the, the the uh the uh fuel makers are uh working together to build a, a more e efficient and less carbon based fuel and i was just wondering when that when i go through you know if, as far as production and stuff how that's going to affect things uh everyone is talking about this and i posted a chart recently from new england showing that the percentage um it was one point at night when the percentage of oil used in power generation in New England, and as you all know, these are blue states, uh, the use of oil was 6%, and the use of renewable energy was only 4%. Okay? So oil was 6%, the renewable energy 4%. The problem was 92% of that was uh, uh, literally garbage, and wood, 92 of that 4%. Yet, it was classified as renewable. 
Now, all of us burn wood. We know what comes out when you burn wood. Yet, it is classified as renewable wood and clean or, or renewable energy. Yes, we, we have some technologies that can reduce the amount of carbon, and we should do that. We have no problem with that. But we got to be careful. I am keenly interested, and those who are close to me, they already know this years ago. In my research and in my personal life, I am keenly interested in the unintended consequences of rules and regulations. It's an amazing area. And when government started subsidizing the uh, green diesel and the biofuel, and mostly in Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brazil, all of a sudden, we started having more fires in the forest than ever. And climate change prophets started talking about the effect of climate change and how forests are bur being burned because of climate change. It wasn't, especially in Brazil. It wasn't. It was people burning the forest because they want to plant plants that can produce biofuel so they can make money. That was the unintended consequences of the policy and still classified as biofuel, green. And guess what? The only way you can be very productive is to use fertilizer. And that fertilizer is coming from natural gas. So I think that gives you a, a clear idea where I'm going with this. Yes, there are things we can do, but it is the low-hanging fruit. But the net effect has to be studied carefully. Yeah, I'm in total agreement. Uh, I just had a post I ran across today. The, uh, the UK is, is uh, they're going to put tariffs or refuse to do any business with, with uh, other countries that don't, that don't participate in, in their initiatives. Absolutely, absolutely. And now we have a new, uh, another trend that started about four or five years ago where uh, people... Um, are justifying removing the trees from old forests, um, making the justification that the if we put solar farms instead of forest, the net is green, which is very sad because they are focusing only on carbon. And even if their calculations are correct, what we are seeing is they are forgetting the other issues because uh, um, soil erosion becomes a big, big issue because the forests have several roles in our lives. It's not only carbon. And what happens is you remove a forest and you end up with erosion, uh, soil erosion, and you end up with moving sands and moving land, etc., and all those slides, mudslides. Uh, so they ignore all of that. Thank you for your time, Doctor. Thank you. Great question. Great back and forth. Thanks for coming up, Nathan. Um, I believe I sent you down. Okay, cool. Um, then I believe next is Never Right, uh, then JN, then Saren G, and then Kumar. So, Never Right, welcome to the stage. Do you have a question for Dr. Anas? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, my question is, 
what is your outlook for the global economy relative to gas prices for 2023? Dr. Nas, um, I don't know if you heard that question or not. Yes, I, I heard it. I thought I was on. I wasn't. Uh, you mentioned gas. What do you mean by gas? Do you mean natural gas or gas gasoline prices? No, no, my bad. I mean, I mean crude oil. I was just looking at a gas EFT. Maybe think. Made me say that. Okay, okay. I'm glad I asked. Okay. Um, our outlook is right there in the nest right now, and uh, there is no paywall, so feel free to read it. Uh, our outlook, basically, uh, we have, uh, in fact, just two scenarios uh, to make it simple. Or what we published, only the two scenarios. One is everything as usual, and uh, we expect uh, oil prices to average about $88, which is the lowest among all forecasts, except city. And um, we think that most of the changes and the growth are going to happen in the second half of the year. We believe that China is not going to be a big deal in the first half, as you heard me earlier. Uh, one of the disappointments we ended up was uh, we thought that the oil-producing countries themselves, despite the impressive economic growth they have, their oil demand will grow. Well, their oil demand did not grow as much. Uh, and it is very clear that those governments are becoming more conservative than ever in terms of spending. Uh, so we did not see that demand materialize. So our, our numbers are very conservative, whether on the demand side or on the uh, uh, supply side, we believe that U.S. production is going to uh, increase meaningfully uh, next year for various reasons. But we raised, we flagged the issue, or two issues we flagged in the outlook. The first issue basically was crude quality, which uh, many of you got tired of me repeating that, because yes, we might end up with massive growth in shale. But if all of it is going to be condensates, then we have a serious problem. Uh, and the other related issue is, and this is one of the outcomes I did not mention today, one of the outcomes of the uh, conflict. But the reason why I did not mention it, because it really happened before the conflict and it became bigger during the conflict. For the first time in history, in 2021 and 2022, We've seen something that we have not seen before, which is a very strong competition among various energy sources. So we have problems with coal. All of a sudden, the demand for LNG increased. LNG prices went up substantially. And all of a sudden, the imported coal, uh, the, sorry, the imported coal uh, uh, basically is not as important. And governments re, uh, decided to dig their own coal, which was of a bad quality, and some regional uh, governments decided to go back to oil, and then when oil prices went up, they, re, they went back to coal, oh, and this was really quick. And then when we had power outages, we've seen private generation, and in private generation, we started seeing the use of diesel, which is the hysterical fuel. All of a sudden, we start seeing uh, 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 LPG, 
being used because it was cheaper in some areas. And in some places, they started talking about uh, uh, LNG and they started talking about hydrogen. All this substitution uh, uh, add to that what happened in Europe. All of a sudden, the wind stops and then you move to natural gas and then you move to coal, depending on what you have. And the sun rises, you go back to solar. And by the evening, if the wind does not go back, you go back to gas. This issue of substitution, this, the way I described, never happened before. This is just amazing. And therefore, with the deterioration in the data, if we don't understand the complexity of the issues this way, and the data is not there, uh, we are really, we, all of us are going to suffer. Back to oh, you. Sorry, one more question. And, sure. and then what do you what do you think about the, the Iraqis accepting one? for oil. You, th you think that's just a nothing? Or do you think that's not a big deal? We have uh, a full newsletter on this. Uh, it, uh, we published it last week. Uh, if you uh, contact me on Twitter, I'll be happy to send me an email and I'll, ha I'll be happy to send you the text without the paywall. Uh, let me explain this point because this is very important. We were the first one, by the way, in the world to debunk the story and explain it. The story goes like this, and we got this from the Lion's Den. So this was not uh, a guess or something like this. We got the information directly from them. Uh, Iraq has a serious problem, has serious problem with the exchange rates because of the massive black market that exists. And they want to control the exchange rates. At the same time, they have problems with the everyone was holding or, or hoarding dollars. And that, the hoarding of the dollars, this is very common, by the way, when a country's currency deteriorates, like uh, places like Turkey and Egypt, when their currency deteriorates, everyone holds dollars or euros. So this is common behavior. So there was lack of dollars in the market, and they need to do those trades with China. The focus of the central bank was only on Iraqi imports from China by the private sector. Let me repeat that. The focus was on, on imports from China by the private sector. Has nothing to do with exports and has nothing to do with oil, period. Is that clear? Thank you. Back to you, Brandon or David. Great, great answer there. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, the back and forth. Now let's get to Jay. And then did you get the uh, the the uh, message that I sent to you about the article that uh, Adam published on his website? Um, I don't see the message come through just yet uh, about the one with uh, that Adam published. Yeah, I, 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 it's uh, this is why oil will remain uh, priced in U.S. dollars. I just sent it to you. Okay. Uh, when I see that come through, I will uh, tweet it out and put it in the nest. Uh, okay. so it, it should be there now. Okay. Let me check. Uh, sometimes my DMs work a little slow, unfortunately. Um, but uh, JN, welcome to the stage. Oh, we actually have Adam here. So. Um, Here's Adam. Let's, uh, Jan, if you could hold on one quick second, 
Um, I think uh, we'll we'll have Adam uh, come up and and speak for for a second. Welcome to the stage, Adam, and uh, yeah, welcome up. How are you doing? Can do we got gotcha? you? No technical difficulty. No, no, perfect. I always forget. I've got to press that on the mute button. I want to do a quick sound check because I'm on my Bluetooth headset. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep, we can hear you. Great. Okay, perfectly. Yeah, and just allow me to uh, kind of better inform what Anas is referring to with the post. Yeah, thank you so much, Anas. He, he wrote a post. We put it on my uh, on my blog, which also goes within my own family office syndicate. Um, and uh, if I can just contribute just a little bit of background to that, I think it might be helpful. Because I think as the questioner had kind of posited to Anas, it was uh, almost kind of a conspiracy theory, which a lot of people are now particularly sharing because there's so much propaganda and confusion pumping it. And uh, one of the early conversations I had with Anas was uh, to uh, forget about the term petrodollar. Do I recall that correctly, Anas? Yes, and, and mostly it's coming from uh, people who are involved in the uh, gold trade or the gold consulting. Yeah, thank you very much. And I would say um, I'm going to write around Anas's article. I'm going to write something a lot more robust so that people can have a better understanding. And as, as Anas referred to gold, a lot of people look at the gold standard as something that's kind of a perfect, almost utopian. Reality was it was anything but that. Um, you know, you have speculative runs, and Anas can obviously discuss this a lot better than I can, but you have speculative runs in commodities, you have speculative runs in gold and silver, um, new, uh, there's new findings of oil or gas or whatever it is, or corn fields can be put up where you can short them against the market. So, um, I am, uh, yeah, Anas, I'll be, I'll be reposting that. Uh, and then around it, uh, with that as kind of the nucleus, I'll also write a little bit more background on the imperfections of the gold standard, which was also silver. Uh, what went wrong, how pro recessions were very prolonged and unstable in the years of the gold slash silver standard, um, and why that had to be kind of dismantled uh, to kind of compress recessions and be able to manage them better and have more liquidity in the market. Um, so uh, I just wanted to dispel as, as quickly as I could that notion of the collapse of the dollar. And uh, I think it is very helpful um, to, uh, to uh, kind of begin its debunk by just, again, repeating what Anas told me, which has been so helpful as kind of a conceptual framework that uh, you have to forget about um, the term petrodollar. And in fact, as I kind of explored it more, and I've got a family awesome, we spend a lot of time on this, uh, it's actually a good uh, leading indicator that the person you're speaking with is either genuinely misinformed with good intent, or um, they're uh, they've they've, uh, they've they're very misinformed and they're kind of boastful about it, and they're you know reading some of the wrong things that are not based in, in reality. So that's it. I just want, and I'll post that. And I just wanted to. Uh, I get sometimes frustrated when I hear those type of questions because they're usually based upon. Um, not economic things, not on IMF reports or SWIFT reports or, you know, interchange banking reports. So that's it. I will definitely uh, come up with that article. And thank you so much for um, um, for allowing me just to uh, stick my 10 cents into it. So uh, 
Uh, Adam, the article is already there, so it's already being tweeted and posted. Yeah, and I'll I'll add I'll add some robustness to it because as you mentioned, you know, gold the gold people particularly like kind of trying to uh, demythologize, I suppose, dollar. But uh, one of the things that people don't understand is how much the dollar. And obviously, Anas understands this better than everybody because he's he exists completely within that world. But the, the dollar is desirable because it's liquid. And as you say, people hoard the dollars. Um, and um, so I'll, I'll write a little bit of, about kind of the imperfections, again, of, you know, of gold, just so that uh, your words can have, uh, you know, I, um, I can add a little bit of direction to, to, uh, to that post so that uh, your words can uh, maintain and better preserve their precision. That's it. I said too much. I'm getting off. Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, if you you're welcome to stay up as long as you'd like, Adam. I really appreciate you uh, coming up. Well, I get I get fuming, and I was going to tell you that I really get uh, upset when I hear people kind of comment on a dollar because usually it's kind of this Pepe, Pepe Escobar or Gonzalo Lira um type of kind of a political rambling and they'll use distraction and diversion and they'll look you know look the other way and they'll talk about chinese propaganda chinese have no desire to have their currency be any type of a reserve because that would require a lot of more transparency and a lot more liquidity to uh to the renminbi both onshore and offshore uh it's something that they that they definitely don't want and nobody wants a, a commodity based basket uh, because I'll I'll make a I'll I'll make a billion shorting it. I mean, it's 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 an absurd type of thing. Um, so that's it. I'll but again I'll uh, you know so I can uh, finally get off and kind of uh, you know allow uh, allow Anas uh, to retake the stage. That's it. I just wanted to express my outrage and uh, to hopefully better inform Anas's words and uh, contribute into that post. And I'll put myself on mute. All right. Thanks so much for that insight. And uh, yeah, you got that background there, Adam. So I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, JN, you're already back up on the stage. Um, so feel free to unmute and uh, ask uh, Dr. Anas a question. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Anas, for your time and your generosity. My question just pertains to something that you said about the release, the upcoming release of the SPR, that it was going to be more focused on light sweet as opposed to medium sour um have they disclosed the reason why they uh don't want to release medium sour or um can you postulate as to the reasons why they're shying away from that thanks very much uh, yes uh, speculation <laughs> i mean we can speculate all night long uh but uh, i don't in a sense uh, it remains a speculation there is no evidence at all I think, seriously, there should be uh, some investigation by the Congress. They should subpoena the people of the SBR. We have so many questions to ask. Uh, and one of the uh, main issues, uh, we really want to know um, more information about the integrity of the caverns. And um, we want to know the exact cost because based on my calculation, every barrel of oil that the Biden administration sold in 2022 
was sold at loss, financially. But if you want to count the economic benefits to the world, not only to the United States, and if you want to count the political benefits, that is priceless, literally priceless. So yes, there could be financial losses to the taxpayer from buying the oil. Of course, we are adjusting here for inflation, so we're talking about real prices. Uh, and those who are Biden supporters who were yelling, yeah, Biden is smart because he bought the oil uh, at uh, 40 and he sold it for 110. Look, if they were my students uh, in my Econ 101, they would get an F because you cannot make those comparisons without adjusting for inflation. Uh, so we really need to see more studies on this. Because one of the main lessons we learned from that experiment that it was an extremely successful experiment. And that's why it deserves attention, it deserves research, and it deserves uh, investigation. Just imagine that prices declined from 130 to 80. Of course, not all of it is related to the SPR. We have many factors. But those who are specialists in econometrics, they can really sort it out. It's not necessarily to be exact, but at least we know, for example, let's say I'm just making this up, let's say $10, $15 were related to the SPR. But that $10, $15 to the whole world, not only to the United States. We have about 80-something million barrels a day of crude. And multiply that by $10 or $15, and you can see the savings to the world and how much that contributed to economic growth around the world. And in terms of political price, I think the, between the share revolution and the SPR, uh, the, the political results are literally priceless. Back to you. Can I just ask one follow-up question? Sure, go for it. Um, you know, the, uh, the WCS, WTI spread really blew out because... I guess is the type of oil that was being released from the SPR. Can we see like the opposite effect on that spread based on um, what we're, what we foresee being released from the SPR? No, not, not really because uh, this is just an additional supply and it just happened. It has no impact on the Western Canadian select and that's it. So we are not going to see the opposite. Got it. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Just as a, a reference really quickly, Kumar was nice enough to post your article that you had written March uh, for March at, at Adams. And I'm looking forward for Adams revision specifically when we're looking at the gold standard and how like most individuals and participants are confused with, and let's say the onsets of inflation, especially in consideration to let's say new findings and like the coinage act of 1873. So I'm really looking forward to that. So green candle, go ahead. And I do see that you brought up uh, Kumar. Yep. Yeah. Yes, I did. And uh, yeah, Kumar, thanks so much for tweeting that out um, earlier. And uh, yeah, like David said, it is up in the nest for those who want to check it out. But uh, Kumar, the floor is yours. Welcome up. Hey, thank you. Hey, Dr. Nas. Hope you're well. I had uh, a question. I've been thinking a lot about water as I've been buying land in Texas and different parts of the country. And <laughs> right now, energy, you know, demand in the U.S. consumes like 10% of the water supply. But and, and that metric I got from a few years ago. 
but if you <clears throat> if you push out more ESG stuff, which we kind of know is going to happen, is already kind of happening, um, we'll consume more water per kilowatt hour is what it seems like. And we'll certainly have to like <clears throat> consume a lot more kilowatt hours as a result of it um, and a lot of waste 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 in there and so what i'm curious about is how you think about water shortages and issues as it relates to refineries and oil and gas infrastructure if you have any deep thoughts on this um one of the when it comes to water and energy we do have a lot of research that's been done on this for the last hundred years and i don't think it's even we are even scratching the, the surface of that. It's, it's really a major, major issue around the world. And we, for those who are interested, we had a space, uh, I think it was with uh, George Noble, on the impact of drought on the energy sector. So this is exactly the opposite side of what we are talking about, what you are talking about. So this is, we have a drought, now what's going to happen to the energy sector? And the interaction between water resources and energy sources are beyond amazing because you cannot even produce coal without water. And we need massive amount of water, basically, to prepare the coal to burn it in this case. We need massive of, um, amount of water for water injection in the wells for oil and gas. And I'm not even talking about fracking. Um if you look at the impact of the uh, decline in river levels, like we've seen this in Europe uh, just a few months ago, what happened is the barges that carry the coal and the barges that carry the gasoline and diesel, they couldn't deliver it because they couldn't go up, up in the river. So sometimes, yeah, we, we talk about the water usage, but it's not only the water usage. Uh, if, if you look at it, that uh, some factories in Germany stopped completely because the barges couldn't deliver or they, the barges couldn't deliver the, the factory products and their inventories basically uh, reached their maximum and they had to stop. So we are not even talking about the use of direct use of water and energy. And you can see where the impact is. We have a whole region in China where life literally stopped and even the Tesla and other um, uh, car manufacturers got affected because the factories that make the parts literally stopped. And when they stopped, their energy consumption stopped. And all of a sudden in that area, we have a drought, we have energy uh, crisis because uh, we don't have enough uh, electricity but on the other side, we have very low demand, too. So you can see the interaction uh, in, in these circumstances. So you are raising a very, very important issue here. Thank you. So, so with, you know, with part of what I was looking at was if you look at, you know, agriculture is like 80 percent of water consumption, somewhere around there. Energy is 10. And I got that figure from like 2016. So it's a little bit outdated. But, you know, if you look at the top 10 water consumptive, you know, crops, all of them, you know, they're grown on the western half of the U.S., like anything pretty much west of San Antonio has this big water risk issue. Um, 
all of them have a compounded annual growth rate of like seven and a half to 15 percent for the next five to 10 years. Um, now, I just don't know that what 80 like we're just talking about west of San Antonio. Right. I just don't know that, you know, I know that 20 percent of the population lives west of San Antonio. I don't know that what 80 million people, 70 million people in the U.S. and their 10 states are going to get on with their water rights. And I don't know the refinery map of the U.S. And I have to imagine that when they're planning these facility locations for oil and gas infrastructure, that is going to factor in. I just I don't know when the the mega blowback is going to be. I'm sure you saw like, you know, you're seeing all sorts of things, right? Like in five to 10 years, there's going to be dead pools with hydroelectric dams and like How's that? Uh, Kumar, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to link you with one of the top experts on water in the United States who manages a fund that invests in water rights. And he has probably, uh, I mean, all the answers that you are looking for. That would be great. Awesome. Yeah, great connection there, Dr. Anas. Uh Kumar, I'll leave you up here so Dr. Anas can uh, see your, um, I guess, profile to shoot you a DM. But uh, please stay on mute while we have the other speaker who just came up uh, here to ask a question. And I don't want to mispronounce your name, so I apologize about that. But um, Saren G, is, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you. It's it's Shajani, but that was a good stab at it. I've just... Um come into, uh, I, I believe, the back end of this riveting discussion, and I really do appreciate the time um, I've been listening, and I just wanted to ask um, Dr. Anas about your thoughts, and I don't know if this has been addressed earlier in this conversation, but how do you feel about an emerging world economy such as India um, that just won't stop buying Russian oil despite Western pressure over Ukraine during this period of war. Um, what are your thoughts on India buying Russian oil? Um, I hope you will not be surprised that the U.S. and the European Union are happy to see India and China buying the Russian oil. And the reason, there are multiple reasons for that. Because if they embargoed the Russian oil, then they are going to compete with the rest for oil from Saudi Arabia, from the Gulf, from Africa, and prices will go through the roof. And we know that the Biden administration released 180 million barrels of oil from the SPR to lower oil prices. So... High oil prices are not in the interest of anyone. That's why when they imposed the price cap, the idea was, I want the Russian oil, but I want it at a lower price. That's number one. Number two, it is very important for everyone in this space to know, I know some, most of you know this, that what India and China and other countries are doing that they are buying the crude, the Russian crude, they are refining it, and then exporting diesel and gasoline and other things to Europe. So 
it makes perfect sense under the current circumstances, but whatever is going on right now is not sustainable because the market is inefficient and markets can handle inefficiency only for a short time. After that, something got to give. And the market is inefficient in various ways the way it is going right now. The other issue related to India, and I know that some friends from India who are ultra-nationalistic may not like what I am saying. But the problem is, for India's policy, is India's energy policy, and by the way, I wrote about India's energy policy before anyone else 20 years ago, 25 years ago. India's energy policy basically has a flaw in it. They have to decide, they have to find the balance between the economics of pricing and energy security. If they keep jumping after low prices, every time prices decline, they'll get burned. And we have enough evidence by the times, by the number of times they got burned because of it. And they ended up paying an extremely high price just to avoid shortages and blackouts. So the idea here is they should look at imports as, as a portfolio. And one of the main objectives of that portfolio is to minimize risk. And risk minimization in that portfolio require them to avoid this idea of keep jumping from place to place to find the lower price. Thank you. Thank you. That was indeed very insightful. And I'm really glad I asked. Thank you for that, Dr. Nas. Great. Back and forth. Um, and I will, uh, I'm going to start removing some speakers just so we can uh, keep it a little bit more organized up here. Um, but I see we have Ravi here. Welcome. Welcome to the stage. Uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Thank you so much, uh, David, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nas. Just a very follow-up question on Srijani's point. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work on green hydrogen, uh, solar energy, and also, you know, recently, you must have read on 9th of February, India discovered this uh, about a huge lithium deposit, right, in Jammu area of India. So just, just on that note that you just left us with, you know, what does it really mean, you know, from a global energy perspective, when you have all this huge lithium of course that's a huge uh, conversation right now for india to really see how to really optimize the discovery and of course it really moves away from the uh, the lithium triangle from uh, south america so what are your thoughts on that do you think with the you with the fortright of the prime minister with the huge you know kind of a multi uh, energy system which is looking at solar renewable and other forms that this lithium deposit will be a game changer for india and really from an investment perspective, you can speak to that, sir. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, first of all, um, it is th this term is widely used, but people forget what the meaning of it when they say the Indian subcontinent, which means that we are talking about almost a continent on its own that has this massive biodiversity on one side, massive resources, and a massive population with impressive human capital. 
historically speaking, India did not focus that much on its resources. Even when it comes to oil and gas, everything happened late. For that lithium, it is very valuable resource. The issue becomes how they are going to process that and how they are going to end up with battery making without dependence on China. And that becomes the biggest question. I'm, I'm totally spot on because, you know, in a recent article, I just wrote exactly that, that I think the biggest opportunity for us is really to see whether we can move the uh, lithium battery industry from China to India in the next 10 years. And really, it's a huge investment uh, opportunity, but also will create a lot of jobs. So it's, it's definitely, a, you know, an opportunity for India to really look at the possibilities. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, of course, a related issue is, as you know, uh, despite all the improvements that we've seen in the last 10 years, the red tape in India is remarkable. And not only the red tape, basically, is the, the uh, flip-flop on policies, too, which means that if an investor is going to come in with, uh, let's say, uh, $15 billion, $20 billion to invest in that lithium uh, mine, uh, they are scared to death from changes in policy. We've already seen the government uh, imposing excise profit tax on oil companies. We've already seen them uh, imposing restrictions on exports of petroleum products. And I don't want that to happen to my lithium mine if I'm going to move in and bring in $15 billion. Absolutely, spot Thank on. You. Thank you so much. Just just that, you know, maybe I'll, I'll send you a DM because we're organizing a build a renewable energy forum in Chandigarh and Calgary to really look at India as an investment. So I'll, I'll send more information to David. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Ravi, for uh, for coming up and adding all that. Um, and yeah, hopefully uh, you guys get connected. Um, I know David said he had a question here. Uh, we'll transition to Ben. So David, feel free to jump in, man. So I was curious, especially when we're considering geopolitical tensions in, in the area of, let's say, Iran and Azerbaijan, I think that there's something uh, to be said within potential uh, disruption, especially when we're looking at, especially the earthquakes in Turkey. I think that this has like uh, equally disruptions towards uh, gas flows and even oil flows and pipeline flows. So I was wondering Anas's perspective on this. And things. So thank you very much, Doctor. Dr. Anas, did you get that? I did. Uh, sorry, I, I did not pay attention that my mic was closed. Um, when we work on our outlooks, whether oil, gas, LNG, or energy in general, we do not incorporate any scenarios regarding political issues. In a sense, political issues come extra or above what we are forecasting or predicting. And we don't want to get into the issues of scenarios because once you start those scenarios and you end up with six, seven scenarios, etc., you lose it. That's why in our outlook, we just focused on one idea. Are we going to have a recession or not? And that's it. But we can come up with 12 scenarios. So all those issues re re regarding politics, uh, basically, we ignore them completely and anything will be extra above this. Uh, if you look at uh, issues related to 
uh, weather and natural causes like the um, earthquake in Turkey and Syria is the same thing. But what we can do is look at this and learn from them and literally record all the lessons we learned from those. Uh, and that's how we benefit from them. Otherwise, uh, we l really kind of lose focus if we start focusing on, oh, there is this conflict in Libya and there is this conflict here and there is this conflict here, etc. But one of the most amazing things about the oil industry, and we have plenty of evidence to prove this point, the oil industry can work um, in the hottest of weathers in the desert in sub-Sahara or in Arabia. And they can work in the, in the coldest weather in the Arctic or in the Arctic Circle. They can work on the top of the mountain and they can work on the, in the, literally in the top uh, or in the bottom of the ocean. They can work under any atmosphere in the least stable countries. Despite all the conflicts, companies basically were producing in Libya. Despite all the problems historically in uh, Colombia, for example, companies were producing. Despite all the problems in Iran, companies are still producing. So they can produce under any circumstances. And they are, by the way, uh, uh, with, with, along with some uh, mineral extraction companies, they are the only ones who can do that. The rest of the companies cannot do it. So they can survive all of these things and they can operate. The only place where they cannot operate when the, when the, when the legal system is not clear. So violence is not a big deal as long as you have a legal system where it, the, the, the property rights and the contracts basically is very clear. In places where there is no legal system or the contract is not clear, you don't see the oil companies there. We've seen that the oil companies returned to Iraq only after the constitution and the legal system was established. So the, the idea here that Yes, we can play those scenarios to, to, to see what might happen, but we don't do it at Energy Outlook Advisors simply because we don't want to deviate from the main focus and, and the, the main ideas. Thank you. Awesome insight there. David, did you have a follow-up or is, uh, are we good to move on to Ben? One more follow-up in that sense. So if we're going to see continued pressures within, let's say, these areas and these pipelines, especially in the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in that sense, and um, allowing further tensions within Baku and Iran or Azerbaijan in that sense, um, can we see further subsidies out of the EU to mitigate any formal pressures? And then you brought into the, uh, in your earlier analysis, the scary uh, factor as to pushing back the actual ESG type movements and moving into coal. How do you think that that's going to maneuver within their subsidies and potentially mitigating the wealth aspects and or the, the consumptions for your basic retailers? Uh, it is very clear from the experience of 2022 that Europe will stop at nothing uh, to use any economic means to uh, lessen the impact of any crisis, but they don't want to fight. Period. So don't... They, they can... They can and, and I'm sorry, I know some people get offended by what I'm going to say, and this already happened before, that they are really willing to fight to the last 
Ukrainian soldier. So they are willing to send weapons and arms and all that stuff, but they don't want to put their own troops on the ground. So they are willing to use all the economic means, and that's it. Uh, the, but uh, we, we, we already have seen France, basically, is really the most ag- aggressive historically, uh, especially when we see them in West Africa and Mali and other places, and then they had to uh, retreat. With the French in involvement in Algeria and Algeria's election years ago, um, but when it comes to the French, I seriously think, and uh, um, I'm hesitant basically to say what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Strange, strangely enough, France got involved in three countries, in the three countries where they conducted nuclear experiments. And no one wants to talk about it. And some people are saying that there is fear that if the French lose control in those areas and the nuclear experiments basically are exposed, it will be a major political crisis in Europe. Back to you. All right. Awesome. Awesome question there, David. And now, Ben, uh, your long-awaited question. Go for it, man. The floor is yours. Welcome back. Good to see you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Green. Um, and Oz, uh, always a fan. Um, so the to an earlier point, too, about the drought, um, as far as impacting energy in general, the other thing that wasn't really spoken of, but that is still pretty important, is that in Europe, specifically France, uh, their nuclear reactors are very dependent on local, you know, rivers and tributaries and things of that nature. Uh, and those those plants have been struggling lately uh, to produce because those those rivers are running at historical lows. Um, so that's another factor to consider in the entire energy landscape. I'm a huge fan of nuclear, but obviously it does have its weak points, especially when you build it on a natural infrastructure that is dependent on outside natural resources, such as something as simple as rain and snowpack. Um, so wanted to make sure I threw that in there. Um, and the other thing, I saw the news about the, uh, the lithium deposit in India today, uh, which is what Ravi was speaking to. And that is the worst kind of double-edged sword, because as I'm sure... Anyone who follows India knows uh, that deposit was discovered in one of the most contested and militarized zones of India, which was uh, Kashmir and uh, Jammu. Yes, thank you, Jama. <laughs> I knew it started with a J. Um, so it's 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 like if you wanted to set up a gold mine in uh, you know Baghdad in two thousand four, like you're going to have a hard time. Um, it's, you know, it's, and it, and it, and it makes it, I, I would say too, it makes the situation even worse because with this being this extremely contested zone between, uh, India and Pakistan, you know, that's going to make, in, in my opinion, that would make India or excuse me, Pakistan want to even, you know, in, make it a further incursion to that zone at the, now that there's this huge recently discovered natural resource in that area. Uh, it's just going to complicate matters, I think. Um, I mean, I have my full support for India, 
Uh, that is their territory as far as I'm concerned. But that is a huge problem when you basically have this massive uh, natural resource deposit in a highly contested area where people have already been fighting against each other uh, for an extended amount of time at this point. Um, it's just it's just like a mess. And I, I wish everyone could figure this stuff out and <laughs> make something better of the situation, but uh, it's... It doesn't feel good. Yes, two two great points, uh, Ben. And um, we uh, on, regarding the nuclear and dependence on water. I think uh, George Noble recorded that space and put it on YouTube. Uh, so I'm going to search for it and repost it because it talks about every single energy source and it needs for water and what's happening in Europe and China and the impact. So you are spot on on that. And as for the location, yes, uh, you are spot on. Uh, and I just would like to add the following point. Even if Pakistan does not exist, and what we've seen from various areas around the world, and probably one of the best examples is Nigeria, where oil deposits come from the poorest area uh, from a, where completely different ethnic group exist. Uh, and the North basically take all the uh, uh, returns and the South does not get it. And therefore, we've seen all the conflicts and the group that's called MEND fighting and killing and all that stuff. So even without the existence of Pakistan or other country, the fact that a different religious or ethnic group is going to take all the benefits of this while the locals are not going to benefit from it is enough to cause problems. And you, I Brandon. think that generally speaks to the idea that in order to have an investable region or an investable market, you need to have something that resembles rule of law. And again, like back to that, that really goes back to like that huge lithium deposit discovery in India. That is like the actual antithesis of that idea. Um, where you're basically trying to invest in a war zone. Uh, and if you have the kind of insight or edge that, you know, you can see that through on, God bless you. I'm not there. Um, and again, I'm rooting for India. I think it's going to be one of the best emerging markets in the next foreseeable future. We're not quite there yet, but it's, uh, sorry, rambling. No worries, Ben. I appreciate uh, the back and forth there. Um, but we do have Global Macro here waiting. Uh, great mind as well. Uh, so Global Macro, uh, thanks so much for coming up. And uh, yeah, man, floor is yours. Hi. Uh, nice to see you guys. Dr. Anas, always nice to have a, a voice of reason and uh, maturity in a lot of these spaces. Uh, it seems to be lacking um, uh, of late uh, certainly from what I've seen anyway. So uh, I, I certainly welcome uh, your commentary as always. You know, I, I have to, uh, I continue to, to wonder um, uh, in terms of the Ukraine conflict and uh, European energy, um, I continue to wonder where the, the exit is for all of this because uh, it's clear to me that um, Europe may have dodged a bullet 
um, this year. I am very curious as to your um, views, um, whether or not um, medium term, not long term, long term is a different animal, but demand is rather immediate in its uh, requirements. And I'm curious as to what's your perspective on uh, European energy insecurity or security for that matter uh, beyond uh, the first 12 months we're now entering uh, uh, a second and third year, uh, assuming that this conflict remains rather prolonged. So thank you very much. I appreciate your... Uh... Thank, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, first of all, um, when we talk about energy security and from the perspective of energy security, uh, we already know from 2021, way before the conflict in Ukraine, that uh, energy security was in danger in Europe and the situation is getting worse. And unfortunately, the Europeans have not learned the lessons, uh, not from 2021 and not from the conflict. All they are doing basically is shifting the source and shifting the source of energy from country to another is a big problem. I'm going to give you an example here. I'm uh, looking, uh, I'm going to look at a chart just to show you how bad the situation is. Um, in January, in January, 37% of EU natural gas came from Norway. 42% came from LNG and mostly from the United States. So you add 42 to 37, and you can see that almost, uh, we are talking about 75%, three quarters of it is coming for only from two countries. Two countries, one of them is literally under the reach of Russia. So if you want to play scenarios and talk about explosions and bombing and all this stuff, we already have seen so many technical problems and fires in the Norwegian sector that we are not normal. That's number one. Uh, number two, for the United States LNG, we already talked earlier about the hurricanes. We already have seen what happened to Freeport LNG. And back to Norway, by the way, one of the issues with Norway is, is the country where they have more labor strikes in the oil sector than any other sector in the world. Oil sector, of course. So, yes, Europe is in danger when it comes to energy security and just changing resources or changing the direction from Russia to other countries did not solve their problems. Worse than that is they, are, they literally expedited renewable energy, which means that whatever massive growth they have in 2022 in renewable energy, which some people uh, on the far left are bragging about, but they don't know, basically, they just expedited that, that investment. So instead of making it in the next three years, they make it in one year. But what happened in 21 before the invasion of Ukraine? Wind just stopped. Just stopped. And natural gas prices uh, increased to record high. Uh, power prices went to record high just because the wind stopped and they are building more wind. Well, of course, I'm talking about wind farms and wind turbines in this case. So you are absolutely right. This is this is not the end of it. This year, they got lucky with two things. They got lucky with the mild winter, and they got lucky with the hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico. 
And if we end up with a case where we have exactly the opposite, bad first uh, uh, severe hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, followed by bad winter, it's a crisis. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, Dr. Anas, we do have two more requests. Um, and I know we're kind of running up on two hours. Do you have time for these last two? Yeah, let, let, let's go for the last two. Okay, perfect. Um, so we will go with Mark, who I believe requested first. So Mark and Jason, we got you on the on the uh, on deck circle. You'll get up here in a minute. But uh, thanks for waiting patiently. Mark, uh, welcome to the stage, man. Long time no see. Hope all is well. Mark, you there? I am. I'm still struggling with the the error in Twitter spaces where if you join and then get pulled up as a speaker, it switches to your cell phone's call rather than the speaker and your cell phone. So I couldn't hear anything and I'm just holding it up to my face awkwardly. But yeah, I'm here. Thanks for having me up. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you have uh, something you wanted to add to doc what Dr. Anas has kind of been going through or any questions? Or I, I did have a comment. Um, unfortunately, I was in a meeting earlier. I would have joined. This looked like a very good space and, and good to see you, Dr. Anas. Um, somebody has been commenting, I think, about uh, low water levels in French rivers and high temperatures in French rivers leading to loss of production. Just wanted to mention that as far as we can tell, only a few percentage points of total nuclear power was actually curtailed last year, uh, despite the fact that most major newspapers in the world seem to carry stories about the plant suffering from climate change. And the, the general position that I think anti-nuclear groups were trying to push is that there's no scale to any of this. Is it 1% curtailment? Is it 10%? Is it 100%? Who can even tell? The story went out. French nuclear fleet crippled by high temperatures. So then you add it up over the course of the year and it ends up with being, what, uh, one or 2% energy loss. And now we have a sense of scale for the problem. And I will want to mention that if it were a survival issue for France, in other words, if France decided it was in fundamentally within the national interest to keep 100% of their production going instead of losing a few percentage points, then they could just do it because it's it's not a reactor safety issue. It's a it's a choice between different objectives. And in this case, the choice was to reduce the risk of localized riverbed like plant and animal loss um, rather than maximize production, which is cool. That sounds like a great luxury for a rich country to be able to balance a few hundred feet of river uh, biotic life versus having your um, power capacity maximized. But it is absolutely not an existential issue for the French fleet as a whole, which we expect to be in much better condition, thank goodness, next year than it is in this year. Um, and even if France decides to keep those limits and water levels remain low during droughts in the summertime, we're still only talking a few percentage points over the course of a year even if it's going to be more like um, up to, say, 10% of national nuclear uh, electricity at the very worst on really bad days.
Yeah, that's a great insight. Mark, Dr. Anas, do you have anything to add to that or agree or disagree? Uh, no, Mark is the top expert on that. So I, I, I cannot even say anything while he's here on, on this topic. I, I, yeah, I do Mark, appreciate Mark. it. I'll defer to you on the other topics. I guess I would say this, considering the topic of the group, how Ukraine has reshaped energy markets. Um, one of the fundamental questions for me at the start of the war was, was the capture of nuclear plants in battle going to scare people away from nuclear more equal to or less than they are driven towards nuclear for energy security and because of high fossil fuel prices? The answer at this point is absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. And that is the amount generated in Europe and around the world by the capture and shelling of a nuclear plant is much less than the survival instinct kicking in in individual nations, even those very close to Ukraine who are now driving towards nuclear basically as fast as they can with very few exceptions. One of the main exceptions being Germany, which although it is hedging in a deep fashion by refusing to issue deconstruction permits for already closed reactors, um, not all of them, most already closed reactors in Germany have already been ripped into and are being deconstructed. But the most recent, the largest, the finest of the reactors, um, they're just not being torn apart yet. And until I get any confirmation one way or another why that is, we have to presume it's because Germany, the German government has just decided not to issue deconstruction permits. So Germany is hedging rather than returning to nuclear. Countries all around Germany are finding their confidence. Leaders are finding their voice on nuclear as an issue. Pro-nuclear, largely more right-wing parties are winning elections. So as elections occur post-2022 winter, um, slowly we're seeing country after country elect pro-nuclear, explicitly pro-nuclear parties who are working rapidly to reverse phase out to stop the damage of the several decades of anti-nuclear European policies and to move forward. So that was a big question for me. Here's another one that comes up, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it, and that is Russian uranium. Now, Russia is about, it's, it uses about as, it imports is about as much uranium as it exports. That's not the key part. Russia is critical in fuel manufacturing, enrichment, and conversion services. You mine uranium out of the ground, then it has to be put into a form that allows you to enrich it. Enrich it is where you, uh, you, you alter the natural ratio of heavy and light isotopes to uranium to get just the light, uh, more of the lighter isotope, U-235, that works well in power plants. Okay, in order to enrich, you have to convert yellow cake into a gas. That, that is a limited process. There's only a certain number of plants around the world that do this conversion. Russia has a lot of this conversion volume. They're, these are plants that are reserved long in advance, usually with very long-term contracts. Um, the entire nuclear fuel market just doesn't have a lot of spot market action. It's they're very opaque and sort of geopolitical. Now, it's about to get way more geopolitical. The question is, with Russia having such an important role in the conversion bottleneck and the enrichment bottleneck are we going to see russia be cut off from the west 
all the time people try to make the point, oh, look at the terrible nuclear industry in the West. It is continuing to import nuclear fuel and support the Russian war machine. The truth is, as terrible as it sounds, the cash value to Russia is way smaller than the energy value to the West. So at the moment, it's not a very big point of leverage considering how much pain there would probably be in the West. Now, I've asked people in the nuclear world, both inside and outside industry, can, say, American nuclear plants continue to operate, every single American nuclear plant continue to operate if we were immediately cut off from Russian material? And I get different answers, and it's generally just, you know, people talking their book. If you're involved in the fuel cycle, you would say, look, we're ready if, if – America gets cut off. We're just going to have to charge, you know, <laughs> market price for suddenly extremely scarce fuels. Um, other people say, no, this is more important to keep this last bit of uranium and fuel cycle and fuel services flowing in from Russia than it is to cripple our country or other countries by a sudden risk of having to delay refuelings at nuclear plants. In the end, I'm not sure which direction we're going to go. If I had to, if I were forced to to make a bet, and I don't, I don't bet on nuclear stuff. Um, but if I were forced to bet, I would say we're going to continue to quietly taper down as rapidly as practicable um, the amount of material coming from Russia, and it will continue to not be very big in terms of the cash value of energy products coming out of Russia. But that nuclear electricity is absolutely fundamental to the economies of the West at this point because it's so cheap compared to the alternatives. And uh, with that, I'll pause. And if anybody has anything, I can answer it. And if not, I'll just listen. Thank, thank you, Mark. A couple of comments. Um, it's really not about the value of the product as much as about the principle. Because the whole idea of the embargo and the stand of the EU against Russia is based on principles more than anything else. And that's why they are having uh, to pay a very high price uh, for that. So it is really the hypocrisy of the sanctions uh, uh, and it's not the value. But uh, uh, you reminded me of a space we've done about three weeks ago in Arabic. And probably it is important for you to know, probably you already know this, that the Arab population throughout the Arab world in 21 countries, most of them are against nuclear. But since I am a nuclear advocate and I advocate for nuclear in Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Algeria and Morocco, because they are going to have major energy crisis by 2035 and after if they don't have nuclear, people get upset. And uh, I get pushbacks even from uh, people who are in high-level places or university professors or others. So I thought to share with you this story because just to make you laugh, uh, one guy just like burst on the space. And he, he, he was nice, but he just burst like, we don't need nuclear. Um, tomorrow will come Israel uh, and, and they are going to bomb it and all of us are going to die. And my reply was, that's fine. Just build a nuclear reactor on the border with Israel. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, and uh, honestly, we don't know. We don't know um, how Israel is going to. I mean, look, Israel 
a country that, you know, pretty obviously has a nuclear uh, weapons, but no nuclear energy program. They know perfectly well how to tell the difference and what risks to take. Sorry, we're definitely wading into dangerous waters. I'm typically almost perfectly apolitical when I'm discussing energy, even nuclear. But um, yeah, Israel knows the difference between facilities of different types. The Syrians had a plutonium production. I mean, illegal, but there you go. A illegal plutonium production reactor that they were setting up that got bombed and it suited all sides, just not to mention it after the Israelis bombed it. The Israelis are not going to mess with like, well, what the UAE has built. Perhaps the world leading example of a country, the gold standard of a country getting into nuclear energy, where they'll be turning on the fourth of four very large Korean built uh, reactors this year on one site. And we'll have a view towards what's coming. That model is going to be the kind of the jumping off point for a lot of countries in the Middle East. We know, I think it was recently um, sort of made the news that Saudi Arabia had accepted bids at the end of last year for their program. Expect to hear a lot more about Saudi Arabia's uh, civil nuclear energy program in the coming future. But I I um, even more than chuckling at that story, Anas, I really appreciated the window it has onto the mindset of people paranoid that if they get something as special or as, I don't know, world leading as nuclear, they're just going to lose it somehow. So best not to even try. It's a special, the pets encounter another, for example, talking about developing countries, Southeast Asia. And I've spoken, people say, we can't even get bridge. Our country can this right. How do you think do nuclear? That's a different pessimism. That means that the, everybody's pessimist, but everybody's is pretty nuclear. The ultimate, even if it at the ultimately very uh, expensive up front, people are really that that are oil and gas are moving clear. So, apologies for worth yeah, following. Yeah, apologies for that, Mark. You've been cutting off for uh, the last 30 seconds. Yeah, you were kind of cutting in and out, uh, Mark. Um, so, apologies for that. I okay, to- let me do this. Yeah. Drop out back in and then hope it's audio. Sorry about that. No worries. No worries let you back up here in a second um but uh jason has been waiting patiently so i appreciate it jason um we'll let you back up and then uh yeah if you have a question for dr anas or mark we'll get mark up here um as well um but jason the floor is yours hey green candle thanks man so sorry about the noise i'm uh i'm performing exercise I just wanted to know, uh, Dr. Nas, have you ever considered joining a DGEN space? Thank you. What is a space? A DGEN space? Uh, I want to be respectful for Dr. Nas's time, so we're not going to try to get him to, to join any other of these spaces. Um, but I appreciate you coming up there, Jason. Um, but yeah, Thank Mark, you. welcome back. Um, 
yeah, Dr. Arnas, I know we've been going at this for a couple hours. So uh, I want to give you the chance to, I, I guess, sign off here and uh, tell everybody about the newsletter again. And if uh, you have any, you know, uh, anything else you'd like to talk about, feel free. Uh, sure. So we do have two uh, major newsletters. One of them is the weekly and it comes with many perks. Uh, and uh, uh, we have the daily. Uh, the daily is uh, only for uh, almost a dollar a day, uh, uh, and you get the daily. The daily is three parts. It has the chart of the day, it has the story of the day, and it has the news of the day, and we have all our comments uh, on that. Uh, for the weekly, basically, it's a deep dive into issues. I can assure you, I know some people were complaining about the pricing of it, I can tell you, and we already heard this from several clients, that the cost of it is one-tenth of what is equivalent out there for the same quality. One-tenth. Uh, so we have deep dives on various issues. Uh, so what you can see today is the outlook, the 2023 oil market outlook is available for free. You can check it out. And uh, for the re the most recent one, we already posted uh, 14 charts about the topic of today uh, for in oil and gas and the outcomes and what happened during last year. Those are available free uh, too. Um, uh, the, uh, in general, um, I know that there are many free subscribers. Uh, we will put some free stuff for the free subscribers. But uh, sometimes I know some people get annoyed because when we have the uh, kind of the paywall, uh, but we do have people working and uh, they get paid. Uh, so we have to cover their uh, expenses. It's that simple. Uh, but uh, I know that some people uh, either cannot justify the payment even for the $420 a year. I, I completely understand that. We will continue to put some free stuff. We'll put some free stuff on Twitter or other means. And those newsletters basically will always put some free stuff out there. So I welcome, your, uh, I welcome you joining us in one way or the uh, other. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, be sure to check that out. It's a great newsletter and, uh, yeah, well worth the money. And follow Dr. Anas if you're not already. He's uh, one of the best, if not the best, in the oil and gas in industry uh, that I've heard on Twitter. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, this space is recorded, so feel free to distribute to whoever you like. I'll also put it uh, some clips on my YouTube and uh, put the full audio feed out on a on podcast, um, wherever you get podcasts too. So uh, the audio and uh, video, I guess, formats will be available everywhere for everybody to tune in. So, Dr. Noss, on that note, thank you so much for coming up. And, uh, thank you, Brandon. Thank you, David. And thank you, Mark. And for uh, all our friends who joined us today, thank you very much. You all have a great night. And I just want to say thank you very much, Dr. Anas. It was an immense pleasure. And Global Macro said it best. It, it is a rarity to have such expertise. And to be able to have this discussion is a true honor. Thank you very much. Yep. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great rest of your night.